You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can, for Yahweh has called a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad the king of Syria was sick, and when it was told him, The man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you, and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of Yahweh through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camels' loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. But Yahweh has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with a sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, Yahweh has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha, and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day, he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, And he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, yet Yahweh was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Joram passed over to Zair with all his chariots, and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. 
Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was twenty-two years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Ataliah. She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, as the house of Ahab had done. For he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 804 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, January 25th, 2024. And that was a reading of 2 Kings chapter 8. We see the Shunammite woman appearing again and also a fulfillment of the prophecy that there would be a regime change in Syria and in Judah and there's some interesting stuff there's some pretty gritty stuff actually to talk about with this guy Hazael he's uh kind of a bad dude kind of a bad dude we're going to talk in this episode about second kings chapter 8 just give me a minute <laughs> but we're also going to talk a little bit more about the barbie movie not a lot we're going to explore some alternative takes on the film to how I took it, and you can check out, if you haven't yet, my extended review of the Barbie movie. That was our episode for yesterday, our episode just previous, if you haven't listened to that one yet. Feel free to pause this, go back, check it out, and then resume with this one as we maybe reconsider. Did I take the movie wrong? Did I misunderstand it? What the makers of the film were going for? And what they're trying to communicate. We'll talk about it. We'll consider it. Also, what does Bill Maher suggest should be the goal in 2024? Virginia Cruda over the Daily Wire says, right or left? Nah, it's normal versus crazy. That's Bill Maher's take. We'll consider what he has to say about America getting back on the meds and let's be sane. Let's not be crazy anymore. Okay, can we stop being crazy? Along those lines, the FBI should probably stop inventing conspiracies and trying to entrap people who are in over their heads and definitely not qualified to be as conspiratorial or seditious or malicious just because the FBI needs something to do. That's no excuse to go inventing crimes, creating work for themselves. We'll also talk, however, about 
a opinion piece by Eugene Scalia, that is, son of former and now deceased Antonin Scalia, Supreme Court Justice, an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal titled, Chevron Deference Was Fun While It Lasted, talking about this Chevron versus NRDC case in 1984, where the Supreme Court decided that they would just defer to experts when in doubt, leave it to the regulatory agencies to interpret regulations, giving wide latitude to unelected bureaucrats in the process and also arguably leading to situations just like what we're going to talk about with regards to the FBI making work, making busy work for themselves. All of that and more we will discuss or try to discuss. We'll see how we do. That's quite a lot to cover in this episode. But first, let's do talk about 2 Kings chapter 8. Elisha warns the Shunammite woman whose son he had restored to life that there's going to be a famine in the land of Israel. You should leave. It's going to be bad. It's from God. God has called for a famine. He says, Yahweh has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. The Shunammite woman takes this seriously and she gathers up her family and they leave. Her household moves to the land of the Philistines for seven years. And at the end of that, they come back and apparently her land having been vacant, someone else has taken it and is using it. Someone else set up there. They've moved in. And it would seem as though they have a kind of squatter's rights that she's going to have to contend with. The Shunammite woman goes to the king. She makes an appeal to the king for her house and her land. And this would seem to imply that her husband has passed away. Her husband was old when she first encountered Elisha and started inviting him in to have meals as he was passing by. And then she talked with her husband about getting a guest room set up for Elisha when he would be in the area, when he would be passing through, he could stay there. And so they did. They set up a guest room on the roof of the house and he asked her, what can I give you in return? And she seemingly didn't want anything or was too afraid to ask or thought it maybe was an impossible thing. And Elisha figured out with the help of Gehazi, his servant, that actually she has no children and she wants a child. She wants to have a child. Her husband is old. They haven't had any children to this point. But especially with her husband being old, when he passes on, who's going to argue in her defense? Who's going to look after her, manage her affairs, take care of her, protect her as a widow? So she ends up being called back. Elisha says, about this time next year, you'll have a child. And so it is. She has a child. This child grows up and is out in the field during the harvest time and complains about his head hurting. And then he falls down. And later that day, he dies. Elisha brings him back to life when the Shunammite woman comes to Elisha asking for help, insisting on Elisha being the one to come and help her son. And here is Gehazi with the king of Israel telling the king about everything 
that Elisha had done with regards to this Shunammite woman, how she had not had any children, but then Elisha told her that she would conceive, that God would allow her to have a child. And then she had the son die, and Elisha, by the power of God, brought this son back to life. And as they're talking about this, here she comes, and she is about to make an appeal to the king, requesting her house and her land back. And so it is that the king appoints an official specifically for this task, restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. However much that was, who was producing in the fields that had belonged to the Shunammite woman, it doesn't matter. Whoever it was, they need to compensate her for what her land has been doing while she was out, while she was away. Surely they have derived a profit, but now she should be paid something like rent in arrears because it was still hers. It still belonged to her while she was gone. Next thing you know, Elisha goes to Damascus. And this is an interesting choice given that Damascus is the capital of Syria and Syria has had some serious conflict with Israel. But Elisha comes to Damascus and Ben-Hadad, who is the king of Syria, is sick and Elisha goes to visit. The king says to Hazael, take a present with you, go meet the man of God, inquire of Yahweh through him, asking whether I will recover. Now, the answer that Elisha gives is curious, and the answer seems to imply that if it was just the sickness, the king would make a full recovery. But it's not going to be just the sickness. It's not going to be that he dies of natural causes. Hazael is going to murder Ben-Hadad, before he can recover. When it looks like the king of Syria is going to recover, Hazael is going to smother him with uh, essentially wet cloth to where he won't be able to breathe. The king is weakened and won't be able to protect himself, defend himself, fight off Hazael. And Elisha knows that. But then it's an interesting, curious, dramatic moment. Verse 10, Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover. Go tell him that, but Yahweh has shown me that he will certainly die. As in, Elisha and Hazael are having a very tense moment where Hazael recognizes, you know I'm going to kill him. And Elisha tells him straight up, I know that you're going to kill him and you will be king over Syria. But there's this staring contest that happens. Verse 11, he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And that suggests to my way of reading it that Elisha sees and is given visions from God of the future, not just that Hazael is going to kill Ben-Hadad, he's going to murder him, he's going to assassinate the king, and not just that Hazael is going to become king after Ben-Hadad, but also that Hazael, in due course of time, is going to do some awful, awful, awful things to the people of Israel, men, women, and children. And Elisha tells Hazael what it is that he's seen. I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. Verse 13, Hazael plays dumb, 
feigns innocence, feigns ignorance. What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? Already you have baked into that evidence of the kind of character that Hazael has, that he thinks that would be a great thing. He thinks all of that would be actually pretty fantastic for Syria to inflict trauma and terror on Israel in such a way. Elisha answers, Yahweh has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Elisha leaves. Hazael leaves. The king asks, Hazael, what did Elisha say to you? He answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day, he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael, in fact, did become king in his place. Next up, you have Jehoram. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king in Judah. Remember, Jehoshaphat is a good king. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel, which is not a good thing. Imitating Ahab is not a good thing, but then they were so committed to trying to unify, reunify Israel and Judah and their houses that the son of the king of Judah had married the daughter of the king of Israel, and that proved to be a corrupting influence. The daughter of Ahab was his wife. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and yet God was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant. Not because Judah was so good in and of themselves, not because Jehoram was so good, but because David found favor in God's eyes. God had promised to David to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So God does not destroy Judah, but Edom revolts. Edom was subject to Judah. They set up their own king, declare independence. Joram passed over to Zer with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. They abandoned him. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. They were successful in maintaining the independence that they had declared. In other words, Libna revolted at the same time. And so even though Judah is not destroyed, they're having subject peoples, subject kingdoms stripped away one after another. And this is due to the wickedness of Jehoram because he's following the pattern. He's following the example of Ahab. And that was a very bad example. It was a wicked example. Next up, verse 25, in the 12th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 when he began to reign. His reign was a short reign. One year is all. His mother was Ataliah, granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He followed Ahab's bad example, did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And this is in part because he was the son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria at Ramoth-Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Joram. We see here the beginning of perhaps what it is that Hazael is going to do to Israel, this wounding of Joram. Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, goes down to see Joram, son of Ahab in Jezreel, because he's sick, and that's where we leave off. That's kind of a cliffhanger as far as it goes, but that's where we're at. You have 
Israel and Judah trying to get closer and closer to one another, and that's a bad idea. Unity on these terms with those who are idolatrous, the kings of Israel following the pattern of Ahab are not good people. They're not God-fearing people. Unity with them at the expense of doing what is right in God's eyes is going to be disastrous for Israel and Judah. And apparently, when you pursue unity on just any terms whatsoever, and you forget God and you're willing to compromise with regards to doing what is right, obeying God, as we'll see, sometimes God gives your people over for judgment to another people, even to a wicked people that don't know God and don't worship God as they ought to either. Because what's worse than being a pagan is making a pretense of being a worshiper of God Almighty and mixing in, as you please, wickedness and folly, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power, being lukewarm, being a hypocrite. And a hypocrite is not just somebody who says these are their ideals and they imperfectly pursue them. No, a hypocrite is somebody who says these are their ideals just to gain an advantage in the minds of people, to pretend at virtue, all the while doing very wicked things because they actually don't love virtue. They just like looking like they're virtuous. When you unify with people like that, or if you become a person like that in order to have unity with people who are openly wicked and idolatrous, don't be surprised if God raises up people who are openly, flagrantly pagan. And they're not making any pretense. There's no pretending at virtue. No, they just want your destruction. But then as bad as that is, God demonstrates in times just like this, just like we're reading about, he'll use that. So in our next episode, of course, we'll get into 2 Kings chapter 9. We'll see more of what happens with the kings of Judah and Israel and Elisha and Syria. But for now, let's jump into a reconsideration of some of the material in yesterday's episode regarding the Barbie movie. Jamie Sarkanak, writing for the National Post, says Barbie is not woke, but a pointed critique of feminism. She says the film is self-aware and satirical. It is not anti-male propaganda. She published this August 3rd of last year. It's not a long read, so we'll just read the whole thing. Here are her thoughts for a different perspective on the film than what I gave you and what I still generally hold. Quote, I am pleased to inform you that the new Barbie movie is not woke, nor is it anti-men, as some have labeled it, or feminist garbage. Unless you take the most shallow reading of the film available, it's a satire and it's hilarious. Barbie begins in Barbie land, a plastic utopia where the women lead every institution and populate every profession. The ladies seem to spend their days complimenting and agreeing with each other. The dolls live in a bit of a fascist state. Corporations are under the strict control of the government and are not entitled to free speech. The men, all named Ken, save for Michael, Sarah's Allen, make up an underclass who do little more than compete for the women's attention. There don't appear to be any real couples, just monogamous friend zone ships. Barbie's platonic boyfriend, Ken, played by Ryan Gosling, spends his days jealous of the attention she gets by merely existing and is frustrated by his eternal rejection. The Barbies are a diverse bunch. There's a fat one, a trans one, an amputee, and so on. This diversity is not reflected in the Ken population, however, which is multiracial but lacking in quirks to appease the female gaze, of course. Notably, the only different Barbie who is shunned and ridiculed for her features is the pregnant one. 
It's a perfect-looking yet oppressive utopia where second-wave feminism is taken to the extreme. Women live to work. Men are a redundant class that provides the service of ego inflation, while relationships and family are stigmatized. Margot Robbie, who stars as stereotypical Barbie, described the state of things as, quote, the opposite of misogynist, end quote, in an interview with ABC News. All is not well in Barbie land, however. Barbie begins to experience aging and becomes haunted by thoughts of death. This is unacceptable in the feminist utopia. The only way to fix this, she learns, is to journey into the real world to help her human owner work through her feelings of malaise. In the real world, Barbie and Ken discover that gender roles are sort of reversed. Ken, for the first time in his life, sees that men can have jobs, interests, and rights. Channeling Ben Stiller's Derek Zoolander, Gosling's character learns that there is more to life than being very, very good-looking, and plots to liberate his fellow Kens in Barbie land. Barbie, meanwhile, is confronted with the fact that feminism hasn't in fact solved all women's problems in the real world. Barbie's human owner is a prime example. She's a somewhat melancholy middle-aged mother dealing with a hostile tween, an aging body, and a mundane work life. Barbie dolls may have inspired a generation of women to aim for illustrious careers, but the reality of work life is that most of it is mundane. Unlike Barbie dolls, real women often have to balance their work lives with family. It's hard to have it all. Another cold reality of the real world is that sexism and sexual harassment, which Barbie experiences for the first time. Poor treatment can come from the same sex, too. At one point, she's bullied to the point of crying by a girl who seems to represent the enlightened third wave. But Barbie also sees the good. Moms in the wild appear happy. Elderly ladies are dignified. Women can found multinational corporations. While men disproportionately occupy positions of power in the real world, it is much more equal than Barbie land, women can become doctors under the real-life patriarchy, while the poor Kens aren't entitled to the reverse. Life as a woman can be hard, but there's actually a lot of good out there. Barbie returns home, accompanied by her human companions, to find the matriarchy in shambles and the Kens in charge. It's not actually that bad, though. Conversations have suddenly become more interesting, instead of superfluous compliments, the dolls spend their days talking about horses, finance, and films. Even under the patriarchy, men still desire relationships and fight for status by trying to impress women, a recognition that women have intrinsic value in any social context. Despite his musical prowess, Ken ultimately fails to attract Barbie. The women maintain the matriarchy by using their seductive qualities to trigger infighting. The Kens must content themselves with a first-wave meninist movement. Ultimately, Barbie land no longer appeals to Barbie. It's paradise, but only for the kind of womanhood that rejects family and romantic relationships with men. Not only is the world of female perfection immature, it's unfulfilling. In the real world, it's okay to get older, to grow and become a mom. It's unclear to me whether the creators intended for the film to be satirical. Ah, okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. It makes me feel better. It doesn't exactly matter, though. Structurally, that's what it is. Barbie Land isn't supposed to be a model for human society. Barbie and Ken learn a little bit from their travels, but not enough to be rewarded with love in the end. Ken doesn't overcome his narcissism, retreating into his life of boyish fantasy, and Barbie only half overcomes hers. Barbie is best viewed as a critique of feminism and modern progressive attitudes toward gender roles. It's an enjoyable watch for anyone. Ultra-feminists will like the literal interpretation of the film that tells the viewers that the feminist utopia is good, and those more critical of feminism will enjoy how the film shows the viewer that utopia isn't actually all that great. Everyone will enjoy the fast pace, the lively set designs, and the over-the-top antics of the Kins. So there's a take, right? There's a take for you. 
Similar, maybe, when she admits that it's not clear whether it was meant to be satirical, but then I don't know that she's really convinced of that because she says in the subtitle for the article, the film is self-aware and satirical. It is not anti-male propaganda. Well, maybe it is intended to be. And if it's intended to be, but it actually serves as a tragedy instead of a comedy, if you understand that they're not better off at the end of the story than they were at the beginning of the story, then I think that reinforces my point. And yet there's a slim possibility that it was actually intended to be a subversive critique of feminism. The feminism, especially third wave feminism, is insane. It's crazy town. (laughs) It's not leading to happier women or happier men. It's just leading to more and more loneliness and more and more contention and grumbling. And it doesn't even recognize, it won't admit all of the things that women have been given that were supposed to make them happy to this point. And so maybe just don't take it all that seriously. Maybe it's about as real, about as substantive as Barbie Land, as presented by Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. For another brief take, not reading the whole article, but just referencing it, and you can check it out for yourself. Amy Lerner over at Punto Rojo writes, Barbie is a reactionary movie masquerading as feminism. She published this piece August 19th, updated it August 29th of last year. And her final paragraph, I will read for you. Here's what she says in conclusion. The movie is literally putting female presenting children in boxes and telling them to smile for the camera in movie theaters and teaching young girls worldwide that what it means to be a woman is to get married and have babies in the context of abortion and gender-affirming care being under attack in the U.S. and much of the world. This movie is a feminist nightmare. To see it otherwise is to accept that right-wing ideas have taken hold in the government and in Hollywood and that we are powerless victims in the face of this. Amy Lerner, you should know, and this from the website, from the page for this article, Amy Lerner is a longtime socialist and fighter for reproductive rights. She does not believe that this is good feminist material. She believes this is actually an attempt to upend feminism and reject it and caricaturize it or lampoon it. Meanwhile, consider two articles over at Collider.com, one by Kelsey Matson, who wrote and updated this piece December 19th of last year, Barbie offers a new perspective on women at work, and it's not what you think. After an astonishing box office performance and a superb critical response, it's abundantly clear that Greta Gerwig's Barbie is the complete opposite of the cynical consumerist propaganda most audiences assumed it would be, i.e., it's just a toy commercial. The multiplicity of themes that Gerwig, a female director with a pointed history of deftly summarizing the nuances of female existence, manages to balance is a staggeringly impressive triumph. What's more, said themes are moving. Scroll through social media for five minutes and you'll witness how deeply Barbie's piercingly tender insights about humanity and living in the world as a woman have resonated with countless femme-identifying individuals in a raw, rare way. Translation, this is actually explaining the plight of women today Well, that's how she takes it. She says, Barbie empowers women to carry childhood joys into adulthood. She says, in Barbie, America 
Ferreira's Gloria shows that women don't need to surrender their imaginations. Greta Gerwig's Barbie subverts expectations about adult women, and so on and so forth. That's Kelsey Matson's take on Barbie. It's impossible to be a woman today, and this movie captures how impossible it is. But then that doesn't necessarily mean that we're condemning feminism as having made women miserable, made men miserable, made the whole lot of us miserable. And it doesn't necessarily affirm that feminism is the answer either. That really just gives us, yeah, this pretty well sums it up. Okay. (laughs) And where do you go with it? Do you see this as a comedy? Do you see this as a tragedy? It still comes down to, do you think she's better off at the end or don't you? That's my take. But Claudia Picado over at Collider also published a piece December 16th or updated it December 16th. The negative reactions to Barbie only prove the movie's point. Quote, we have to always be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. Big picture bullet points here. Barbie's success and positive reception are a result of its underlying message about the contradictions of womanhood, resonating with audiences of all ages. Greta Gerwig's career ambitions and her direction of Barbie faced criticism from some fans, highlighting the challenges women in positions of power face. The mixed reactions to Barbie, ranging from accusations of being woke to not feminist enough, demonstrate the film's exploration of the complexities of living in a patriarchal society. Again, we go back and forth. Some take it one way, some take it the other way. And that supposedly is the point, according to Claudia Picado. You're supposed to be able to take it both ways. It's open to interpretation because this is the mess. Again, my view is the film ends up being a tragedy. Because this mess isn't the plight of being a woman under the patriarchy. This film is an exploration of how feminism has wrecked the dynamic between men and women. You know, whether it's men relating to other men, whether it's women relating to other women, whether it's men relating to women, women relating to men, or all of the above relating to God, feminism has done a tremendous amount of harm. And it's a confused and self-contradictory answer to what it purports to be the real problem, but maybe it wasn't the real problem. Maybe the problem wasn't patriarchy. The problem was man's sinful nature. And maybe the answer to man's sinful nature expressing itself is not women leaning hard into their own sinful nature and saying, aha, yeah, we can be just as awful as the worst men. Maybe the answer to men and women expressing their sinful nature in a way that harms themselves and one another is we repent of being sinful and we redouble our efforts to actually love one another in the way that God told us to. And by the grace of God, in Christ Jesus, we're able to. Again, that's my take, but you're seeing it can be taken multiple ways, depending on whether you think feminism has been such a good thing or whether you think feminism has made a big mess of 
our dynamics. But lastly, before we move on from Barbie and get into some other topics, some other stories, Rob Thomas of Matchbox 20 fame loves how Barbie used push. I did this thinking I'd be the butt of the joke. Carlos de Loera writes for the LA Times. Rob Thomas knows that Matchbox 20 is easy to push around and drag down, but he never takes his successes for granted. Thomas recently opened up about having his band song, Push, featured as the Ken National Anthem in a pivotal moment of Greta Gerwig's box office winner, Barbie. In the scene, Ryan Gosling's Ken leads an army of his fellow guitar-wielding, horse-loving, patriarchy-upholding Kens as they attempt to serenade an audience of Barbies with an intimate yet ridiculous rendition of the 1997 song. Quote, when I got the call for Barbie, they told me, Ken's by the fireside, he's playing the song, and it's his favorite band, Thomas told USA Today in an article published Sunday. Quote, so I did this thinking I'd be the butt of the joke, and I was fine with that. I'm pretty thick-skinned, but Julie Greenwald from Atlantic Records came to the Hollywood Bowl a month or two ago. She had just seen the movie and was like, you come out of it loving Ken and loving Push. And I was like, ah, all right, really good. Now, what's interesting is in this article, Rob Thomas explains how when he wrote the song originally, it was not as a lot of feminists took it, some glamorizing of men being abusive to women. He says, and I quote, what's funny is I wrote that song about someone I had been with who I felt was manipulating me and taking advantage of me. So in a weird twist of different times, there's something very problematic about push if it wasn't for the innocence of how it was written. But everything about it was about emotional manipulation. It was just about this idea that it's so much easier to find someone you can take advantage of than it is to actually put work into a relationship, end quote. Long and short of it, Rob Thomas wrote the song in the first place, feeling like he himself had been led along, strung along by somebody who was very uh, emotionally abusive, which is a thing, by the way, and it is possible to be emotionally abusive, despite what some knuckleheads may say, some knuckleheads I'm related to, one knucklehead I'm related to, it is possible to be emotionally abusive. And sometimes the instinct or the knee-jerk reaction you want to reach for when people are manipulative or abusive towards you is to be manipulative right back or to be abusive right back. And that's not a good response. It's not a healthy response. But then what is a good and healthy response? That's the question. Everybody just be lonely forever and avoid having relationships with anybody. Just sort yourself out. Let everybody else sort themselves out. And just commit to that for the rest of your life. I hope not. I really hope not. But like I said, that's all the more we'll say about the Barbie movie for this episode. If I come up with some other interesting takes, if I come across some other interesting interpretations of the film, I'll be sure to bring them to you on future episodes. But for now, let's move on with our lives and consider what else is happening in the world besides people thinking and talking about the Barbie movie. Virginia Cruda over at the Daily Wire reports, Bill Maher weighs in on 2024. It's not right or left. It's normal versus crazy. I'm going to play for you, cut one here, some audio from Real Time with Bill Maher in a clip he tweeted out on X with the caption, the battle for the soul of America isn't right versus left, it's normal versus crazy. Here it is, cut one, take a listen, and then we'll talk about it. And finally, new rule for 2024, America has to go back on its meds. (laughs) You know, over the holidays, I saw a lot of people, and I asked them all the same two questions. One, 
Have you seen Woody Harrelson? He's my ride. <laughs> and two, if I said, let's make 2024 the year of blank, what would you say? I was surprised. They all said the same thing. Sanity. Let's make this the year of sanity. Everybody thinks we've gone bonkers. And a lot of it is because the far ends on both left and right have gotten way too much attention, which begs the question, how do you suck all the oxygen out of the room and still not get any to your brain? I... I feel like it wasn't that long ago when you could watch cable news for a day and not get the impression that this whole place was totally batshit. That simply was not America. Florida, yes, but not America. (laughs) So let's examine what makes sane people feel this way. Sane people who are, after all, still the vast majority and who are the ones who, I assume, just voted me the most trusted man in America. That is a real headline. Thank you. Just call me Billy Cronkite. Anyway, what does, what does strike a sane person as crazy? I don't know. If you can ask me, I would start with the fact that I still occasionally see someone driving alone with a mask on. <laughs> Who... Who do they think they're going to get it from? The lady in the next car putting on her makeup? (laughs) Or maybe I would say it's the continuing debt ceiling debate. Every time a Democrat is president, the Republicans threaten to tank the world economy by forcing us to take a vote on whether to pay back the money we already spent. No other country does this. It's like eating at a restaurant and then taking a vote on whether to dine and dash. And and whoever the Republicans make Speaker of the House, if he doesn't vote for Dash, which he really can't do in the job they just gave him, they try to get rid of him. Congress isn't a deliberative body anymore. It's a rave without a permit in a burning paint warehouse. (laughs) Insane. But probably the first thing on my and most people's list of insanity is that this guy is going to be president again. It feels surreal that we're in court every day trying to prove Trump wanted to overturn the election while he's on the campaign trail every day telling everyone they should have overturned the election. (laughs) It also strikes normal people as insane that Trump fans are perfectly okay with the fact that he was recently asked if he wanted to be a dictator And he did not say no. (laughs) Neither did his lawyer say no when a judge asked him, could a president who was not impeached order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? The lawyer's answer was a qualified yes. Okay, these are not brain teasers. And cut, and cut, and cut, and cut. In the next example he gives, he criticizes, Bill Maher does, Claudine Gay and the other Ivy League, prestigious, top-shelf university presidents testifying before Congress and not being able to answer an unqualified no. (laughs) Uh, The attorney for Donald Trump supposedly, allegedly said a qualified yes to the question. He was asked by Judge Florence Penn, but the university presidents didn't give 
a unqualified no <laughs> with regards to those who call for genocide of the Jews on college campuses in America. And Bill Maher's point in all this is to say we need to be sane. We need to be normal. Stop being crazy. Well, wait a second, though. Okay, so wait a second. Get back on the meds and making this a normal versus crazy, you have to have an agreement as to what constitutes normalcy and what's a standard of normalcy. If the measure is this isn't normal compared with what I grew up with or what was typical in the prime of my life, how America was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if that's the standard of normal, what is justifying, what's supporting that as being the standard of normal? And this is where Bill Maher, being the most trusted man in America, according to the poll he was citing, he comes in ahead of Joe Rogan, Tucker Carlson, not by a huge amount, but he is ahead of them, according to that poll. It bears some weight on what we conclude is regarded as normal today. After a fashion, his being so trusted and also being the one who's saying, let's be normal versus crazy. You know, if a lot of people are listening to you, if you are the most trusted man in America, is it possible that actually it's your audience thinking that you are the same person in a lot of regards and some crucial key questions? Isn't it possible that that actually is part of why we're so crazy right now? Why people are being irrational and unreasonable? Why there is the ridiculous being highlighted on both ends of the political spectrum? But then is this just a political spectrum thing? Bill Maher, as I featured in a recent episode, had California Governor Gavin Newsom on his program and told his audience, told the whole country that watches his program that he's been trying to encourage Gavin Newsom to run for president and he thinks he would make a great president. Maybe Bill Maher's audience is the crazy here. (laughs) The people who think Bill Maher sounds so reasonable, maybe these are the people who are not so reasonable. They laugh, they nod, they say, yeah, that's great. But how are we defining what crazy is and what it does and what it looks like, what it sounds like? Do we have an objective standard or is it a moving target? For as long as the progressive paradigm has held sway in America, it's been something of a moving target, I would say, because utopia is what's being pursued. Man is infinitely perfectible by his own efforts. If we just have the right policies, the right laws, the right programs, the right policies, the right education, if we have the right economy and the right economic situation, man can be perfected. Well, wait a second, though. You know, it's one thing for you to say, I'm going to continue to work on improving myself and being the very best that I can be. I want to be perfect, but then it's quite another thing to have a standard of perfection that is arbitrary and it's godless. And that's the single biggest problem with Bill Maher's brand of reasonableness. His brand of normalcy is atheistic and it's progressive. And even if it objects to the most counterproductive or silly expressions of progressivism, it doesn't admit its own culpability, its own guilt in having justified 
that silliness. You say, ah, but the woke stuff, you know, he's not for the woke stuff. That's not enough to go on. It's the godlessness that can't maintain a fixed standard of decency and morality and being polite. It's the godlessness that says, I'm just going to observe the natural world. I'm going to be scientific and scientistic and positivistic and materialistic, which breaks down at a certain point any expectation of here's how I'm supposed to behave. Here's how, here's how I'm supposed to relate to other people. And when it's arbitrary and when we're trying to, oh, I don't know, for instance, maintain some level of peace in the Middle East or in the world relative people who are angry about the modern nation of Israel, it can get downright silly. If the narrative is arbitrary and it's left to the experts, the people who are supposedly the most scientific, the most materialistically successful, and how do you know? Well, because look at all of their money. Look at their influence. Look at their fame. Look at how many people tune into them. Look at how many people respond that they're the most trusted man in America, for instance, for example. When it's left to those people and we just defer to those people and they become the standard or they arbitrarily among themselves set the standard, it might be occasionally that a Bill Maher is outside of that inner circle and criticizing it to maintain a kind of relevance for the people who are still not quite there, right? The mainstream majority of folks who are not quite on board with all of this just yet. But in due course of time, he's invited into that inner circle and those are his ideas or his ideas are having an impact on the final decisions that are being made. Does he see a lot of these harebrained notions as suddenly becoming normal versus crazy? You know, what does it mean that America needs to get back on the meds? That's to embrace and affirm that these are issues of brain chemistry, first and foremost. If you can't fix it, let's at least medicate it so it's not disrupting so much, so we can get back to work, so we can get back to watching real time with Bill Maher, for instance, without being upset and stressed out and losing any sleep tonight because we got to go back to work tomorrow, right? Got to get back to the office tomorrow and I got to keep my job. Why? Because I've got to earn a living so I can keep up my standard of living. But then if it's the same folks saying marriage is totally optional and arbitrary, having children, one, any, lots, whenever you please, however you please, raising them however, you just do you, then what they're considering normal shouldn't be assumed as a reliable guide and it shouldn't be assumed that that's going to lead to a good end. If it's entirely arbitrary, then how do you know that Donald Trump's lawyer answering a qualified yes, and I quote, a qualified yes to the question of could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? How do you know that that's not right? Going back to 2 Kings chapter 8, how do you know that this Syrian Hazael smothering the king on his sickbed and killing him, murdering him so that he can become king. How do you know that that's morally wrong, that that's an evil thing, that that's a, a bad thing to do? You don't do that. You know, that's a shocking, disturbing, very unpleasant interaction that Hazael has with Elisha. Very tense. He fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. Why? Because he was seeing visions of what this guy was going to do. 
And he tells him, this is what you're going to do. I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with a sword, dash in pieces their little ones, rip open their pregnant women. Hazael says, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? And that's the whole trouble with the kind of thinking, not to say Bill Maher is Hazael, but his ideology, his kind of thinking pretends at being so innocent and so innocuous and so harmless if it's not king in the moment. And meanwhile, the people of God look at what it is that God has said is going to happen when you pursue these things, you embrace those things, you believe this is true, you reject the truth about that, when you commit yourself to certain patterns and certain attitudes, certain behaviors, when you worship other gods, worship the gods of the nations, you don't worship Yahweh God, and we see a vision of where this is going, and we warn, and the answer is, (laughs) what is your servant? Who, me? Nah, I would never. Now, it is actually a little bit encouraging if Bill Maher is saying, this guy, right, this guy is going to be president again. That's his expectation. His expectation is that Joe Biden will not win re-election in November and that Donald Trump will win the presidency and he will be president again. And that stresses Bill Maher out, at least in part because it stresses his audience out and he wants to maintain relevance to them. He doesn't want to go too far in this whole normal versus crazy sort of talk. But his appeal to reason, his appeal to our decency or normalcy, it's going to fall flat when there's no objective standard and it's arbitrary because you're a libertine, (laughs) because you're an atheist, because you've spent most of your career to this point mocking those who are God-fearing publicly, as publicly as possible. You can't mock those who are God-fearing, make a mockery of virtue and decency, and then be shocked to find traitors in your midst, shocked to find that there are no decent people willing to pick up the mantle of leadership and carry it forward. Now, he makes much of Republicans in Congress actually trying to negotiate over raising the debt ceiling, and he mischaracterizes it. He says, this is somehow us taking a vote on whether we're going to dine and dash when the bill comes due after eating at a restaurant. No, 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 no. This is us trying to figure out how do we actually work our debt in the other direction. But it's Bill Maher's, people just like Bill Maher, who present this as if that's absurd. Absurd that we would talk about reducing our spending, reducing the size of government. And all the while, he turns to Gavin Newsom and he says, you should run for president. That would be great. Yeah, look at California. California is in a terrible spot. Hemorrhaging people because they're less and less free. They're less safe. They're less prosperous. And for what? To what end? To what good purpose? It's normal versus crazy. Yeah, but you know what? You're just grading on a curve then. What happens when crazy becomes normal? What then? What happens when your idea that this is just an agreement among gentlemen, how we're going to live, but it doesn't bear any relation to the moral fabric of the universe as established by God, as judged by God? What happens when it's just the agreement among gentlemen, but then the gentlemen are not so gentle? They just make a show of being gentle. What happens when you inflate the size of government and you just spend more and more and more of the taxpayer's money to hire staff 
to regulate, to interpret regulations. Congress passes law after law after law, stacking laws upon laws, regulations coming from those laws and interpretations of those laws and regulations being left up to the bureaucracies. And then somebody comes along or a whole bunch of Americans come along and they say, you know what, this is ridiculous. I pay too much in taxes and I'm regulated far too much, far too closely. I can't innovate. Innovate at your peril when what's being demanded is compliance. No, no, no. You can't innovate. So-and-so's got an R&D department in their big corporation. You leave the innovation to them. The government will give grants to the people who should be innovating. Don't worry about it. Never mind that the Wright brothers beat (laughs) government-funded folks who were trying to figure out how to make airplanes that people could get in and fly around in. No, we're going to say it's normal versus crazy, but then I don't think Bill Maher and I agree on how to establish a standard of mental health, emotional health, because we don't agree as to what constitutes spiritual health or if there is even such a thing. He thinks it's spiritually healthy to be godless and to mock anybody who's God-fearing, who's religious, particularly Christian. And we see the consequences, and who will he blame? He'll blame the most extreme people who are on the right end of the political spectrum and on the left end of the political spectrum, conveniently having placed himself in the center, or so he says. It's self-serving, and it's short-sighted, and it's hubristic. And more of that is not going to improve our situation. It's just going to deepen our problems. When craziness is the new normal, you can't just say, let's be normal, everybody. It may be that they are being normal. These people are being normal. What is normal and reasonable is how they are behaving and how they're talking and how they're living life and how they're feeling based on what it is that you told them must be true and must not be true. And maybe you're so busy pleasing yourself, entertaining yourself, being well-fed, that it doesn't have to actually work in your life. There's a lot that compensates and cushions you from the consequences of these bad ideas, but not the everyman, not the typical average viewer. So they suffer for it and then they'll blame Republicans or maybe they'll blame the woke folk while they laugh along with you. And maybe it's not the fault of Republicans and it's not the fault of the woke folk. And it's not even your fault at the end of the day because they made a choice to believe wrongly to think wrongly, to say untrue things, to do what they ought not to have done, but you're not helping, at least. This is a pretending at virtue. I think it's hypocrisy, really, truly. Yeah, joke all you want, but it's not all the same. It's very important that we would recognize that it's not all the same, whatever your truth is. Yeah, you just do you. You live your life, leave me to live mine, and it's all the same. Whatever you believe, whoever you believe in, whatever God you pray to, It's all the same. No, it's not all the same. It's not. And sometimes Bill Maher talks like he knows that, and other times he doesn't because he's double-minded, because he's stiff-necked. He's stubborn. But then that's also why he's the most trusted man, because he is double-minded and stiff-necked like so many Americans. So that makes him representative and indicative. Even as he's influential, he's also just a mirror of sorts for a lot of Americans who've gotten an education that lends itself to godlessness and materialism and positivism and self-indulgence and being a lover of pleasure and lover of self instead of a lover of what is good. And then when the consequences of that are very bad and you're not enjoying it anymore, 
Well, maybe that's when you're like, oh, man, we should do something different. Well, but what if it's not just we? Maybe it's you and you need to get right with God. To highlight how it is that we very often in this country today are trying to justify ourselves and justify how we are the good guys and we're doing what's right, I draw your attention to Harris Rigby's January 22nd post at Not the Bee. Judge orders the release of men framed by the FBI. Quote, the FBI invented the conspiracy, identified the targets, manufactured the ordinance, end quote. Now get this. When the FBI learned that a judge was releasing a group of men that were targeted and trapped and framed by the Bureau, they probably had to try hard to remember the specifics. The Newberg Four were arrested and tried in the post-9-11 fog in a terrorist sting that a judge now believes to be totally illegitimate. James Cromitty, 58, and three other co-defendants have been given time served after they were convicted of terrorism charges in New York in 2010. From the judge, quote, In a scathing ruling, McMahon wrote that the FBI invented the conspiracy and identified the targets. Cromedy and his co-defendants, she wrote, quote, would not have and could not have devised on their own a crime involving missiles that would have warranted the 25-year sentence the court was forced to impose, end quote. Quote, the notion that Cromedy was selected as a leader by the co-defendants is inconceivable given his well-documented buffoonery and ineptitude, end quote, she wrote. These were four low-level criminal knuckleheads It was completely ludicrous to think that they could somehow have come up with a plan to launch a rocket attack on New York City. According to the judge, the only reason this became a case against the Newberg Four is because an FBI informant made up the entire plan. Quote, Cromedy was bought into the phony plot by the federal informant Shahid Hussein, whose work has been criticized for years by civil liberties groups. McMahon called him most unsavory and a villain sent by the government to, quote, troll among the poorest and weakest of men for terrorists who might prove susceptible to an offer of much-needed cash in exchange for committing a faux crime, end quote. Huh. Quote, Judge McMahon said that Crumity was a small-time grifter who was broke and unemployed when he was enlisted in the FBI-driven plot and provided fake bombs to plant in exchange for $250,000 in the jihadist mission. Cromedy enlisted the other three men to serve as lookouts, according to the judge. Quote, the three men were recruited so that Cromedy could conspire with someone. Quote, the real lead conspirator was the United States. The FBI invented the conspiracy, identified the targets, manufactured the ordinance. End quote. Here we have a few other articles embedded from Not the Bee. Remember the plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Whitmer that the FBI foiled? Yeah, the FBI apparently helped hatch it. There's some seriously shady stuff going on here. Here's another one. Ted Cruz goes nuclear while questioning FBI official about their involvement in the January 6th riot. Here's another one. Representative Massey and Vivek say every American should watch this new evidence of the manufactured January 6th narrative. In other words, the FBI has in recent years been doing the same sort of stuff that JFK put the kibosh to when he was president. And that is Operation Northwoods, which you can look up, look it up for yourself. Operation Northwoods was an operation recommending developing a, quote, communist Cuban terror campaign in the Miami area, in other Florida cities, and even in Washington, end quote, according to Wikipedia, which involved bombing of civilian targets. And it was supposed to be blamed on the Cuban government to paint a false image of Fidel Castro, a false flag 
operation basically is what it was. It was an idea that originated within the Department of Defense of the U.S. government in 1962. JFK said, no, no, you can't do that. He refused to allow them to do that. And that might be part of the reason why he ended up being assassinated (laughs) because that sort of a thing was happening. And the sort of thinking that goes into, well, you've got to win whatever the cost, whatever it takes. If you're not willing to do that sort of a thing to defeat communism, then you really don't care about national security. That sort of thinking is the sort of thinking that becomes prevalent when we embrace godless, arbitrary, self-serving virtue signaling because we're materialists, because the ends justify the means, because we're utilitarians. When that sort of thinking becomes normal, you have a government that lies to its people as a matter of course, manipulates its people, censors and suppresses its people, oppresses its people as a matter of course. At a certain point, they drop the pretext that this is for national security, and you have to admit that this is just a whole lot of people trying to justify their jobs, trying to come up with work to do, even if they have to cause problems that they themselves then go in and solve. If you draw attention to it and you say, hey, this is corrupt, this is evil. Yeah, just like you're supposed to be protecting us from people who do these sorts of things, when you start to do these sorts of things just so you can protect us from yourself, crazy is normal. And honestly, the perception among many people who are very ready to vote for Donald Trump in November is that that pretty well sums up how the bureaucracy, how the deep state, as some people call it, or the bureaucratic state, if you will, related to Trump during his candidacy in 2016, during his whole first term as president, and how they've related to him ever since he left office, and especially ever since he announced that he was going to run again in 2024. Crazy being the new normal is a fine way to sum up 2020 and COVID policy. And yes, people driving around by themselves in their cars, wearing masks, like Bill Maher was pointing out. It doesn't have to make sense when bureaucracies are given a wide latitude. They're not elected. They're not accountable to the general public. And they get to just make it up on the fly. And because it would be more costly, if not impossible, for you to challenge them, and they would destroy your life if you tried, and it would bankrupt you if you tried, Most people just go along with it, and that cements it in. And because they can also go after people in government, even the president of the United States, or judges, or congressmen, or senators, or governors, because they can, and they have gone after elected officials, I think it bears mentioning that 2 Kings chapter 8 that we read at the top of the episode is not unusual in the history of people governing themselves and one another, people overseeing the administration of a country. It's not unusual for this sort of a thing to happen where somebody wants to be king and there's just one problem. There's already a king and so they just kill the king so they can become king. Hazael smothering the king who is sick and then becoming king in short order happens. Now, what was his title before? Does it say? Who's Hazael? Somebody. He was somebody important, somebody close to the king maybe an advisor, maybe a vizier, maybe a assistant, maybe a regent, maybe a governor. It doesn't say. He's just Hazael. Hazael who? I don't know. The king sends him to go and ask Elisha. 
Am I going to recover? Yes, you're going to recover. Except I know he's not going to be king for much longer because you're going to murder him, Hazael, so that you can become king. I've seen it. I've seen what you're going to do as king too. It's terrible. It's enough to make me weep. That sort of thing happens where people who are not actually supposed to be in the top spot, they're not supposed to be in control of the things, they're not supposed to be running the country, end up behind the scenes for all intents and purposes, effectively running the country. And then at a certain point, they say, okay, we're tired of working from the shadows. This is so inefficient. This figurehead has got to go. I'm really the one in charge anyways, and I might as well have the title and I might as well have the credit. I'm tired of being treated like I don't know or I'm not important. This is what happens. What happened with these low-level criminals, that they needed to be made into bigger criminals so that the FBI could say, see, we got them. Or an FBI informant could say, ah, see, yeah, see, we're getting them. This sort of thing makes us less safe because what if somebody wants to destroy your life and they set you up like this? Or they even just are happy to make it look like you're guilty when you're not guilty. They plant evidence so that they can then find the evidence and put you away so that they look like they're really doing a great job. They're really protecting the country. And this is, oh, by the way, part of why it's so important to negotiate about the size of government and the budget of the government, particularly when we are significantly in debt, when we are so significantly in debt that even just to pay the interest on the national debt exceeds what we spend on our military. To maintain our Department of Defense and all the branches within it. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Space Force, all their budgets combined, not even what we spend just to pay the interest on the national debt. And so Republicans say, we need to negotiate. We need to reduce spending. We need to slash budgets on some of these departments that shouldn't even be departments necessarily. How about let's even just abolish several of these departments because we can't afford them. And they're not even a core function of government. They're not a legitimate function of government. This should be handled by the private sector. Leave it to the private sector to innovate and to figure it out. Necessity is the mother of invention. When you handle all of it, then there's not a felt need. And so people don't innovate. And the bureaucrats are not interested in being innovative except to justify their own jobs. They'll be innovative and very creative as they make work for themselves Republicans are thinking not just about the cost of government when it's very big, but also the danger of a very big government as pertains to the wealth and the security and the liberty of the people of this country. And Bill Maher thinks that's a big joke. And to say that the truth is somewhere in the middle, and he just happened to put himself somewhere in the middle, is very self-serving. And that's not going to fix what's broken with our country, with our republic. But consider more about one specific example featured in the list of articles I just read for you, also from Harris Rigby, January 22nd, at Not The Bee. Report, J6 committee erased over 100 encrypted files right before Republicans took the majority. This coming from the New York Post reporting, according to an insider, the Democrat-led committee was supposed to turn over four terabytes of archived data that were a part of the J6 investigation. They only turned over two terabytes. So 100 encrypted files were deleted, erased, 
containing two terabytes of data. Two of the four terabytes that were archived, they were supposed to turn over. They deleted half of the material. They deleted. Why would you do that? Unless you were straight up trying to cover for wrongdoing on the part of the government, on the part of Democrats, on the part of Nancy Pelosi. There's a funny story that I came across last week making much of Donald Trump having said that Nikki Haley was in charge of security in the Capitol on January 6th. And all of these media outlets rushed to point out that maybe Donald Trump is slipping a little bit. Maybe he's showing signs of cognitive decline because that would just be the worst thing to have a president who was suffering cognitive decline. We wouldn't want that. But what was so funny is all of these left-leaning, Democrat-loving media outlets were running headlines saying, uh, actually, no, Nikki Haley was not in charge of security in the Capitol on January 6th. Nancy Pelosi was. I mean, come on. Aha. Ooh. Interesting, though. Nancy Pelosi was in charge of security in the Capitol on January 6th. Tell us more about that. And while you're at it, maybe you can explain how half of the archived data that was supposed to be handed over to the Republican majority when Republicans gained the majority in the House of Representatives was erased and how that doesn't point to something very rotten in the state of Denmark. Here's a quote from Representative Barry Loudermilk, Republican from Georgia, demanding answers. As you acknowledged in your July 7, 2023 letter, the Select Committee to Investigate the January 6th Attack on the United States Capitol Select Committee did not archive all committee records as required by House rules. Quote, you wrote that you sent specific transcribed interviews and depositions to the White House and Department of Homeland Security, but did not archive them with the clerk of the House, end quote. Loudermilk added that Thompson also, quote, claimed that you turned over four terabytes of digital files, but the hard drives archived by the select committee with the clerk of the House contain less than three terabytes of data. Quote, it's obvious that former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's select committee went to great lengths to prevent Americans from seeing certain documents produced in their investigation. It also appears that Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney intended to obstruct our subcommittee by failing to preserve critical information and videos as required by House rules. Loudermilk told Fox News Digital. Quote, the American people deserve to know the full truth, and Speaker Johnson has empowered me to use all tools necessary to recover these documents to get the truth, and I will, end quote. But by all means, Bill Maher, focus on negotiations over the debt ceiling and how absurd it is for Republicans to actually try to negotiate instead of just giving Democrats whatever they want. Tell me more about this as you're setting goals for the new year that we would be normal instead of crazy. Maybe the solution is not more meds. Maybe actually we're so drugged into a stupor and we're so distracted laughing at your jokes, some of which are funny, most of which are not, that we're not paying attention as we ourselves, we the people, are being smothered with wet blankets. You know, it looks like we're recovering from our sickness. Oh, nope. Not so fast. Can't have that. Here's a thought for you before we get into the Wall Street Journal piece by Eugene Scalia. In Syria, in 2 Kings chapter 8, there was a king, and the king got sick, and the king was going to recover. And in fact, he was, according to Elisha, according to God, on the path to recovery. He would have recovered. But because 
some guy named Hazael wanted to be king. Ben-Hadad died. He needed to die so that Hazael could be in charge and run things. What happens in a republic when we the people are supposed to be actually electing our government? And then the bureaucracy gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the bureaucracy at a certain point starts to see the greatest threat to their keeping their jobs, keeping their power. They start to view the people who would elect new leadership as the threat. Oh, you guys are sick, but it looks like you'll recover. Ah, but maybe not. Maybe we don't want you to recover because that might be bad for our political ambitions, our aspiration. That's bad for business because our business is regulating you and making sure that you're complying with the regulations. And that means surveilling you at all times, listening to all your private conversations, reading all of your private correspondence, combing through your financial statements to see whether you bought Bibles or a MAGA trucker hat to know whether you might be a domestic terrorist. Should we, as Christians, rule out the possibility that the bureaucratic state could do effectively to the American people what Hazael did to Ben-Hadad? I don't think so. I don't think we should rule that out. Not for a moment. But let's do talk about Eugene Scalia's piece in the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal, published January 9th, titled, Chevron Deference Was Fun While It Lasted. Let's read his opinion piece here in its entirety. He writes from the top, I'm less hostile than many conservatives towards Chevron v. NRDC 1984, the Supreme Court decision that instructs judges to defer to certain agency interpretations of statutes they administer, which the justices will consider, or rather reconsider, next week. My ambivalence springs in part from filial loyalty. My father, Justice Antonin Scalia, was Chevron's foremost champion before souring on such deference doctrines in his last years. Additionally, I once enjoyed Chevron deference myself as Labor Secretary under President Trump, and boy did I enjoy it. After decades as a practicing lawyer pleading before federal judges, finally, they had to defer to me. Kidding aside, as secretary, I had good reasons to favor deference. It strengthened my department's hand and our ability to implement the president's agenda. It could also help bring uniformity to the law. And I adopted two rules partly for this reason. One rule distinguished independent contractors from employees for purposes of the wage and hour laws. The other delineated when two companies are the so-called joint employers of a worker so that each company must ensure the minimum wage and over time are paid. Both of these were important legal issues the Supreme Court hadn't addressed in decades. In the lower courts, the legal test being applied varied by circuit. My rules were intended to bring clarity and consistency in a way that I thought reflected the right view as a matter of both law and policy. As secretary, I was nonetheless conscious of a peculiarity to the deference my interpretations suddenly were due. For the first time since I became a lawyer, I wasn't doing much interpreting. Often my job involved choosing among a menu of options presented by staff. What the law said was an important factor in determining that menu, but in many cases, it wasn't a factor I gave much thought because it was the responsibility of my lawyers to ensure the options I was given were legally viable. To be clear, there were times as secretary that I posed legal questions more than most labor secretaries, no doubt. But I had already been labor solicitor, the department's top lawyer, years earlier. 
Someone else was solicitor now, and I wanted her to do that job while I focused on mine. Does it tell us anything about Chevron that the officials whose interpretations received deference seldom interpret? At minimum, Chevron deference is a misnomer. You don't defer to someone's performance of something he didn't do. My actions were policy choices, often outfitted after the fact with legal explanations I didn't review. For an agency interpretation to be authoritative, courts have said it has to come from a senior official, a cabinet secretary, or agency head. But the people actually doing the interpreting often are staff lawyers at a much lower level in the agency. The problem runs deeper. Some agency heads not only don't interpret, at times they're indifferent to, even contemptuous of, the right legal answer. For my part, I read statutes, edited draft rules, and never took a position that I thought was wrong legally. But that isn't necessarily typical. Many agency heads aren't lawyers, and countless factors influence their decisions. The president's goals, the forcefully stated views of a budget committee chairman, even anxiety about what the media will say and how that might affect the agency head's prospects for some future job he's eyeing. For some decision makers, these factors will supersede legal considerations. Some rules get adopted against the advice of the lawyers, the actual interpreters. The decider might say to his lawyers, I hear you about legal risk, but I'm going to do what's right. After all, it's possible no one will sue over this rule, and if they do, I might win. You just admitted you can't be 100% sure what the courts will say, and if I lose, then it's on the judges. Everyone will know I did the right thing. That wasn't my method, but it happens, and it punctuates this peculiarity of Chevron deference that courts at times defer to interpretations that the agency's interpreters thought were wrong and which were adopted because the decider was contemptuous of the law's meaning. A court never knows when this is how an interpretation was adopted. A coda regarding those two rules I adopted in hopes of bringing consistency to the law, my successor as secretary set about undoing both. In the case of independent contractors, the department on Tuesday adopted a new rule with a diametrically opposed approach. Expect litigation to commence immediately over which rule should remain in place, the one I adopted or the new one. I had hoped that by acting through rulemaking rather than opinion letters or guidance, the department would provide interpretations that proved durable, leaving the law more settled and predictable than before. Events proved me wrong. So, to an extent, have they proved Chevron wrong. Once heralded as a way to use agency expertise to bring clarity and consistency to the law, the doctrine often is experienced by the public today as a series of sharp vacillations in the law as one administration succeeds another. Presidents turn increasingly to the administrative state to implement the priorities they can't enact through Congress. Each administration improves on its predecessor's playbook, becoming swifter and more adept at identifying legal positions it wants to change and issuing rules and decisions to do so. This will be on the justices' minds next week, too. And just so you know, that's the end of Eugene Scalia's opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, this is a big deal. It may not seem like it's a big deal because a lot of us, especially conservative Christians, are more focused in recent years, in recent decades, on issues like abortion or marriage equality or religious freedom. But this is a really, really big deal, even when it comes to those sorts of issues. If it's bureaucracies and it's bureaucrats and it's wild swings from one administration to the next, whoever's in the White House and whoever they appoint to be secretaries over major cabinets, that has a huge impact on not necessarily what the law is, strictly speaking, 
but how your government relates to you, what you're permitted to do, or what bureaucrats and agencies will systematically punish you for to get you to stop doing, to get other people to stop doing those things. Also, just so you know, Amy Howe at scotusblog.com argues in a January 17th piece that the Supreme Court is likely to discard Chevron. So from my vantage point, as I'm looking at this, this is a good thing. This is a move in the right direction. I hope that, in fact, Chevron deference is thrown out because it should be if we would have a smaller government, if bureaus and therefore bureaucrats would have less control at a federal level over our day-to-day lives. If we would shrink the size of government and be more prosperous and be safer and be freer, we have to shrink the bureaucratic state. We don't need everything done by the federal government and that a lot of us are just sure that we do, that the more the federal government takes on, the better life will be for all of us is all the more reason in my mind why we need to prove that wrong by shrinking the size of government. We can't afford the government that we have right now, and it's time we admitted that. But in conclusion, again, going back to 2 Kings chapter 8, not just Hazael and Ben-Hadad are in view here. Think about the first six verses having to do with the Shunammite woman. This woman being warned by Elisha specifically, you should pack up your family, your household, your people, if you have servants, pack up all that you can and leave Israel for seven years. You're not going to want to be here. Yahweh has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. To her credit, she left. To Elisha's credit, he gave her a heads up. When she came back, her story was being told to the king of Israel in real time as she was coming to make an appeal to the king for her house and her land. The king ordered her land and her house restored to her, and not just that, but also the produce of the fields from the day that she had left the land until that day. And that's more to the point, the core function, the core responsibility of government. That's what it means to do justice. Whose land was it? Her land. Whose house was it? Her house. She left. Somebody else set up shop there. Somebody else was producing on that land. It doesn't matter. It's still her land. If she wasn't doing anything with it, that didn't make it not her land. It's not the government's job in a situation like this to say, yeah, you know what? You left. You have extra. You didn't need it. Somebody else needs that. It's not the government's job to say to a woman in her position, when she does come back, when it's safe to come back, defer to the experts. It's the proper role of government to protect private property. We find private property all throughout scripture. We find God caring about the economy. We find the people of God, we find the man of God here caring about people and their economic situation. Remember what was immediately preceding the account of Elisha's interactions with the Shunammite woman was a story of a widow of one of the sons of the prophets who was about to have her children taken away because they had debts. And the debt collector was there to take her children because she didn't have anything of value except for her children. She asks Elisha for help. And the help she gets is economic 
relief. And it's supernatural, which is to say that God can supernaturally intervene in your economic situation. Don't rule that out. I wouldn't rest on your laurels and quit your day job expecting that. But if you can't help it, do ask God. And oh, by the way, my brothers and my sisters in Christ, listen, (laughs) it's appropriate for you also to attend to widows and orphans. It's appropriate for you to look out for those who are being oppressed and trampled on. We will eventually at some point get into Proverbs. And the very last chapter of Proverbs doesn't just deal with the excellent woman, the excellent wife who fears the Lord, manages her household well, loves her husband, loves her children well. That last chapter of Proverbs also talks about what a king should be about, how a king should do justice, and he should open his mouth for those whose rights are being trampled on. He should open his mouth for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan who's being abused because they don't have connections. They don't have somebody to speak up for them and to plead their case. It's the role of government to protect people and, yes, to protect their private property. The bigger our government gets, the more desperate, the more arbitrary, the less and less likely it is that anything approaching normalcy, as Bill Maher is calling for normalcy, anything approaching normalcy will be a solution. But what is a solution is we repent and we turn from our sins. We ask God for forgiveness and we ask him to hear us from heaven and to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And what God says is, if my people who are called by my name will repent and turn from their sins, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive them. And what? I will heal their land. We have economic troubles. Maybe just maybe our economic troubles are a direct result of our sinfulness as a people, that we've been wicked and not repentant. We've been hard-hearted, stiff-necked, proud, haughty, oppressive, lovers of pleasure, lovers of self, not lovers of what is good and what is true. If it's true of us individually, let's repent. If we see an opportunity to speak up for those who are being led away to the slaughter, let us not pretend we did not see that thing because God knows. God knows and he will not count us guiltless. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. I've got work to do, work to get to. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.